you have your Bibles this morning, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to look at two uh, passages there that is confusing to some folks, but we're going to try to explain it to you this morning as we're on a series that we've entitled Keys to Reclaiming Our Nation. We're coming up on a, a, an election on March the 3rd. It's a very important election, just like most are, but I think this one may even be more so than many others that we've had within the past because we are at it seems like we're at a point in our nation that we're about to lose our nation because I believe the reason for that is because Christians are not getting out exercising their their political you know opinion they're not out there exercising their vote we're not out there electing people who has the same, you know, values that we have. We either stay home or we just elect someone who think, that we think is, sounds good or just whatever. Folks, it's time the church of Jesus Christ, you know, take, the, take control of our government. We've just let our government go to the dog, so to speak, okay? So up until the March the 3rd, next week we'll have another lesson on this, Keys to Reclaiming Our Nation. And then the closer we get to the general election, we're going to even do some more things, uh, bring some more sermons to you that has to do with that. We want to talk to you this morning on how judgment begins at the house of God. Now this morning I want to dive off into this passage of Scripture that can be confusing to some. On the surface, you look at this passage of Scripture and you say, why would God bring judgment and begin it with His own people? Now, that just doesn't make no sense, does it? If God's going to bring judgment upon our nation, why would he begin with his own people? Now, we can understand God bringing judgment on the ungodly. That makes sense, doesn't it? We can see God bringing a, uh, uh, judgment upon the adulterers, the homosexuals, the, those in the abortion industry. We can see God bringing judgment upon pedophiles who molest our children or drug dealers who sell drugs to our children. But the house of God? the elect, those who are the household of faith. You know, why many ask, does God begin judgment here? So this morning I want to address that question and answer a couple of questions that Peter asked here in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. Here's what Peter has to say. For the time is come. And folks, let me tell you something. I believe the time has come. I believe the time has come that it's about time for God to bring judgment upon our nation. But look what he says. That judgment must begin. Now that's some pretty strong words. That the time is here, the time is now to bring judgment. And Peter says it must begin, not that it could begin, but it must begin at the house of God. And it is the first beginning at us. And what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? Boy, isn't that a good question we'll get to in just a moment. Verse 18. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? You know, I believe there's a number of reasons that, that judgment begins with the household of God. I believe there's a number of reasons that when God brings judgment upon this nation, folks, it's going to begin with the church. First of all, judgment upon the house of God, it can be for various reasons, but one of those reasons is disciplinary reason. And though that, that this passage may seem disturbing to some, in, rea in reality, this passage should really be, you know, a, a passage I believe that we hold dear as God's people. 
This passage should really be maybe one of our life verses. You know, it's simply reminding us, folks, that sin will not go unchecked. Listen, if, if you're involved in sin, if I'm involved in sin, if our nation is involved in sin, we must understand that it will not go in, uh, uh, unchecked, again, even among the children of God. So even though you're saved, you can't just live the way you want to and not pay the price for unconfessed sin. It seems like many within our churches have gotten that mentality now that I can just live however I want. You know, God's a loving God. God's a forgiving God. And God will understand. Folks, the time is coming. That judgment is coming upon this nation. And it's going to begin with the household of God, Peter says here. You see, it's the reality that judgment, you know, of God is coming upon sin. And again, it's going to begin with us. And what that should do, folks, is prompt us to live a life of righteousness. You see, without the fear of, of, of judgment coming upon us, you know, life, we're not going to live a life pleasing to God. Now, the word judgment there in the Greek is krema. krema. And here's what it means. The severe trial which would determine character. Now look at that definition I got up there for you again. Judgment is the severe trial which shall determine character. Wow. Look here. The word judgment here seems to refer to such hardships as test the value of that which is professed. You know, we all profess quite a bit, don't we, as children of God? But what judgment does, it tests the value of that we say we possess. And boy, that will bring to the surface what we really believe. That judgment will bring to the surface of what we really say we profess as a child of God. You see, it's easy to say, I believe God. It's easy to say, I trust God. It's easy to say, I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he may lead me. But what about when life takes a turn that we didn't expect? What about when we find ourselves in a valley rather than on a mountaintop? What about when those fiery darts begin to hit all around us that Peter talked about? You know, what about when we're taking a stand for what is right and we look around and we're the only one taking that stand? What about when the value of that which we profess is put to the test? What then? What then? Look, the second thing here is judgment begins at the house of God in order to develop character among us. This is another purpose for judgment. You know, it, it develops character. It lets us know who we really are. It lets us know what we really believe. And judgment begins at the house of God in order to take the nature and worth of our faith. You see, what, what is it that grows? and develops our faith it's when we have to trust god when we ourselves see no other way when we ourselves see another way paul said that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen what faith actually means is this faith means being sure of the things we hope for and knowing that something is real even if we do not see it that's what faith is all about so, folks, judgment, what it would do, it, it, it helps develop our character. It helps us to truly know if we have faith in what we really say we have faith in. You see, so sometimes the house of God faces judgments or trials 
for the purpose of increasing our faith and getting our focus back on God. However, judgment begins at the house of God when sin is left unchecked. Folks, when sin is left unchecked, judgment's going to come upon the house of God. That judgment must begin, Peter says here. You know, it, it, judgment must begin. It signifies that in order for God to get the attention of sinners, sometimes he has to discipline his own children. Now, let me say that again. Sometimes in order for God to get the attention of lost people, he has to focus or he has to begin that, that, that judgment upon his own people. You see, if the people of God are involving themselves in open rebellion and sinners witness that and God's not bringing judgment upon his own people, that's going to say, well, if God's not going to bring judgment upon his own people, we can do how we want, you know, when we want and whatever. In other words, why would a sinner be afraid of judgment coming upon them if God is just letting his children get away with anything and everything? Does that make sense? Let me give you an example of that. You know, we're, we're not allowed to uh, spank foster children. I don't care what they do. We're not allowed to spank foster children. However, okay, if one of these foster children see Katie or Evie get their hiney tore up for something they've done, and they witness them getting a spanking, you know all we got to do is look at them and say, you want some too? <laughs> Are you with me? And let me tell you something. Boy, they straighten right up. Because if we would do this to our own children, my goodness, what would they do to us? Are you with me? And folks, that's why judgment must begin at the house of God. Because if God allows his children to get away with some things, then the lost is going to look and say, no big deal. But if the lost see God bringing judgment upon his children, bringing discipline on his children, it lets them know if God will do that to his own, what would he do to us? Folks, that just makes sense. Look, I believe that is exactly where we're at as a nation today. The house of God, for most part, is no different than the world. And if we, are the, as the people of God, do not repent and begin being the salt and the light that God expects us to be, begin setting the example of righteousness the way God expects us to do, begin condemning sin rather than condoning sin, then God is going to have to bring judgment upon this nation. And again, it's going to begin with his people, the house of God. And when the lost of the world sees God disciplining his own people, let me tell you something, a loud message is going to be sent that God will not tolerate sin any longer. He's going to bring judgment upon his elect. And, and, and what will he do with them? I have no idea what God's judgment is going to be. That's God's business. All I know is the scripture tells us he's going to do it, that he will do it. You know, I don't know, it, it, it could be persecution like we've never witnessed before. But whatever it is, folks, God promises, I'm going to bring judgment. It's going to begin with my people. And it's going to set an example to the world that I will not tolerate sin any longer. Listen, one of the biggest problems in our world today are those who would keep their light under a bushel basket and, and afraid to speak out against sin. You know, those who don't want to get involved in the political realm because they bought into this lie about separation of church and state. Those who would say, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that a person's biblical convictions should have no bearing in the way they vote or the way they govern. 
Let me give you an example of this. On September the 13th, 1984, been a while ago, but Governor Mario Cuomo of New York, he was speaking at the University of Notre Dame in the Department of Theology, and he made this statement. Listen to this. Being a Roman Catholic, I am personally opposed to abortion. That's great. Okay? Being a Christian, I'm personally opposed to it. But he said, being a Roman Catholic, I'm personally opposed to abortion. And then he inserts that word that most of the time I don't like. But. Okay. Now it's but. But. I am pro-choice on the issue as I believe that the state does not have the right to ban. Now, wait a minute. You're telling me that, that, that personally I'm against this because personally I think the Bible teaches against it because personally I think it's taken the life of an unborn child. Per personally, I believe God is going to bring judgment for those who are a part of, but, but, I'm pro-choice. Now, how can someone say I'm personally against this, but yet I'm for this? Does that make sense? Now, here's, here's the thing. What he's basically saying is this. I, I paraphrased it. While as a Catholic, he was personally opposed to abortion on moral grounds, he had no right to impose his personal religious views on a pluralistic society as his personal convictions should not dictate how he governs. Well, let me say this. If, you, if you're not going to allow your personal convictions based upon biblical values to determine how you govern, how do you determine how you're going to govern? You want me to tell you the way politicians do it nowadays? They send up opinion balloons. And whatever the biggest opinion is, that's what they go with so they can keep their job. Folks, a child of God has no right keeping their life under a bushel. Okay? And that's what's happening. That's what's happening. Now, later his son Andrew, okay, Como, he became governor of New York too. And he mimicked his father's words. And here's what he said. Religious values should not drive political decisions. Religious values should not drive political decisions decisions then why have values <laughs> okay if you're not going to allow your values based upon biblical doctrine to drive you know how you feel how you vote how you govern or whatever why even have values because they're of no avail look this is the very problem within our nation elected christian men and women who keep their light under a bushel and won't allow their biblical values to determine how they govern or how they vote on certain issues. That's the problem. You know, one of my determining factors when I vote for a person is, first of all, is that person proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Okay, if they do, check one. The second thing is I look at their record for voting on certain issues. Now, if their record says something different than what they say uh, when they stand and say, I'm a Christian, then boom, they're out. Because what they're telling me is I have no value. Yeah, I believe what the Bible says, but you know, I'm not going to bring that into the way that I vote. But you know what? They're not getting my vote. 
If you can't stand upon your values based upon your biblical convictions, I want no part of you. I want to, and you know why? I'm going to get into this in just a moment. Because if I vote for a person that is telling me they're not going to allow their biblical convictions to, you know, to determine the way they vote, then every, every law they pass that is against the Word of God, I am responsible for. Let me say that again. If you vote for a person who, who, who does not take a stand, they say they're a Christian, but they will not take a stand, will not vote, you know, in accordance to what the Bible, the God's law teaches, and if they're constantly voting against God's law, then folks, every law they pass, you voted for them, you're partly responsible for that. And if the laws they pass violate God's laws, guess what? You're going to stand before God one day. You're going to stand before God one day to give an account for that. Look, house of God, God cannot allow sin to run amok while his church sits idly by, allowing it to spread without taking a stand and voting or voicing our opposition. Here's the thing. Punishment never comes into the world unless the wicked are in it. But they do not begin unless they first commence, first begin with the righteous. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two: 32, when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, but we should not be condemned with the world. Basically what Paul is saying here is this, yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So when God brings judgment upon us, folks, it's in order, to, it's for our good. It's for our good so that we won't be condemned with the rest of the world. If discipline comes, it must begin with the house of God. And then Peter asked a question here. If judgment begins first with the house of God, look at this question. What shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ be? Now, that's a good question. If God will bring judgment upon his own people, then what in the world is going to happen to those who are lost? What in the world is going to happen to those who are not of the household of God? Let's, let's address that question. If God would bring judgment upon his very own, where does that leave the lost person? What is that saying about them? Look at the question again in verse 17. What shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Let me just read it to you. I meant to put it on the screen. I didn't put it on the screen. Let me just read it to you how Eugene Peterson paraphrased that passage. Listen to it. If judgment time for God's own family, we're first in line. If it starts with us, Think what it's going to be like for those who refuse God's message. If good people barely make it, what's in store for the bad people? Wow. If God brings such trial, such persecution, and such judgment upon his own people, what can we suppose he's going to bring upon those who are lost? Let's dig into this just for a moment. You see, if God deals so strictly with his people, if the visitation of his judgment is not withheld from them, there is no mistaking 
that they who do not belong to him but who live in sin will experience severe judgment. Severe judgment. Look, their punishment in the hereafter will be certain, and who can tell what their measure of severity will be? Only God will determine what their, you know, so, uh, their, their measure of severity will be. But look, every lost person, when he or she, she sees the trials that God brings upon his own people, should tremble you know, under the fact that, well, if God will do this to his own people, what in the world would he do for me? That was the question Peter was asking. Look, this morning, I, I want to warn every abortionist who has ever inserted the, the suction tube into the womb of a mother and, and took the life of her unborn child by piece, by piece, by piece, that one day they're going to stand before the living God and give an account for every baby that they have murdered, for every baby that they burned to death with the saline solution and then delivered a dead body, a dead burnt body, discarding it like a piece of garbage. You know, they're going to stand before the living God to give an account for every baby that an abortionist partially delivered then stuck a pair of scissors in the back of its skull then delivered you know the dead baby uh, you know that had already been partially born and then discarded it like a piece of trash or sold the body parts for gain they will stand before the living God to give an account to every politician who has ever you know passed a law you know that allowed you know the abortion to take place you know they are going to answer to the living God and for every person who voted for that uh, lawmaker who passed the law to, to, to kill these babies you know they're going to answer to God someday folks judgment is going to come upon the sin of this world that is one of the sins that God says I hate those who shed innocent blood and listen to me there's nothing any more innocent than a baby in the womb of its mother you would think that was the safest place for a baby to be, in the womb of his mother. But folks, in today's world, in the United States of America, that is one of the most dangerous places to be. Over 4,000 babies a day, not a week, not a month, a day, are being killed right here in America. How long do you think God's going to allow that to go? How long? Judgment is coming. It's going to begin with the household of God. One reason for that, folks, is because we've kept silent on the issue. We've kept silent on the issue. If God deals so strictly with his people, if the visitation of his judgment are not withheld from them, there is no mistaking that they who do not belong to him but to continue to live in sin is going to experience more severe judgment. The judgments which God brings upon his own people make certain that the wicked will be punished. Look, if God does not spare his own people, why should he spare those living in open rebellion? Why? Sometimes we look at how prosperous some within the, the lost world are and we wonder, why does God seem to bless them financially? Yet many of his children who are faithful to him just barely get by. We ask that question. But listen, the punishment of the wicked is simply delayed, but it is coming. It is coming. Be sure your sins will find you out. The punishment of the wicked is often delayed to a future world, you know, and, and, but it also comes in this life. And though they seem that, 
you know, they have in, uh, uninterrupted prosperity from time to time. In the end, judgment will be certain. Be assured, punishment for the wicked will come in the end. It cannot be avoided. Sooner or later, justice requires that the wicked should be visited with the judgment that is due them because of the sin within their life. Those who are getting rich, those who are getting rich from the murder of over 4,000 babies a day may think they're doing fine. But can I tell you something? All that wealth they're accumulating by murdering innocent babies will one day be burned up along with them. Now, the next thing here, the righteous are saved with difficulty. Now, what in the world does Peter mean by that in verse 18? Look at this. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Look, here's another passage that some people have a problem with. What does P Peter mean? The righteous are scarcely saved. Does that mean every one of us in here this morning... Well, you, you may be saved, but you're scarcely saved. Look, in our English language, that would be, you know, could be interpreted to mean, you know, barely saved. Well, I'm just barely saved? Is that what that's saying? Well, barely saved, I guess, is being saved, but to be barely of anything means it could be pretty scary at times. I mean, if I barely got off the train track before the train come, that would be scary, wouldn't it? I'm off, but, well, I'm barely off. My heart's pounding out of my chest, but I'm barely off. Gerald, if that 18-wheeler that was in your lane the other day, you barely got back in his lane, didn't he? That was scary, wasn't it? You were saved, but, boy, that was scary. Barely, barely saved. Look, here's the thing. If I'm barely saved, could that mean that I'm almost going to hell? Wow. Could, could that mean I'm almost going to hell? So what does Peter mean when he says the righteous are scarcely or barely saved? You see, the word implies that there are some difficulty or obstruction so that the thing that came very near to not happening or so that there was much risk about it. That's what that actually means, okay? Let me read that again. The word implies that there is some difficulty or obstruction so that that thing, your salvation, came very near not happening or so that there was much risk about it. Now, that really don't clarify much more than that, does it? Let me go into detail. All Peter is saying here is that there are things that happen in life which jeopardize the salvation of a person to make it almost not happen. Now listen, if you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior, listen to what I'm fixing to say here. I myself was scarcely saved, okay? In other words, it almost didn't happen. Why did my salvation almost not happen? Why was I scarcely saved? Because of this. One Sunday night at Second Baptist Church in Tomball, Texas, I heard the gospel preach. The Holy Spirit was convicting my heart of the need of salvation. Okay? You with me so far? The Holy Spirit was convicting me, Gene, it's time for you to get saved. I'm calling you now. Today is the day of salvation. But I chose not to go forward when the invitation was given. I chose to say no to the Holy Spirit 
who was calling me to salvation. I chose, as soon as that dismissal prayer was said, to head to the back door. But, now this is a good but. It's not a bad but like well ago, okay? Here's the good but. But, when I got to that back door, I chose to go to my pastor and go to his office and accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Now, how was I scarcely saved? Because by my choices, I just about walked out that door. By my choices, I almost did not get saved. And you know what? That could have been my last opportunity for salvation. Spirit of God doesn't always strive with man. That could have been my very last opportunity to be saved. Because of my foolish choices, I was scarcely saved. Now, once I called out on Christ, you know what? I was fully saved. I was fully saved. But had I not made that choice to go ask Christ as my personal Savior, folks, I may not be here today. I may not be here today. I was scarcely saved. Sometimes there, there, there can be many difficulties and some people come into Christ. You know, there, there's many obstacles that some people must overcome to get saved. Let me, let me just show you. Some people have a problem with pride. And pride can cause a person to not get saved. What do I mean by that? Just like I had pride that night. I wasn't about to go up there and let see people see me come up front and, you know, pray the prayer of salvation, ask Jesus to forgive me. I got too much pride for people to see me humble myself to that point. That could cause you not only to be scarcely saved, but maybe not be saved. Another thing that some people have a problem with is selfishness. Selfishness. Selfishness can cause a person to not get saved. Another thing is unbelief. Another thing is the love of sin. What I'm involved in right now, I'm not willing to give up in order for an eternal life. Wow, how foolish. Listen, there's nothing in this life that you may be involved in that's worth eternity in hell. Okay? Nothing. Nothing. Look, fully saved is what we experience when we ask Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. You may have been scarcely saved, but you're fully saved when that happens. So where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear, he said? Understand this, that they will appear somewhere. When a person dies, it's not over for them. Okay? They're going to appear somewhere. They, they may cease to exist in, in this world, but they will appear somewhere. Where will they appear? They will appear at the great white throne judgment to receive their sentence according to the deeds while they were here on this earth. Turn with me, if you would, to the Revelation chapter 20. The Revelation chapter 20. Because, again, Peter asked that question, where shall the ungodly be? What shall be the fate of the ungodly? Here's what John the Revelator said, according to Jesus. The Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and I saw him that sat on, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. Them is making reference to everyone who had ever died, lost, called up to heaven. 
There was found no place for them. That simply means they were so crowded. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. Now, that's the books of their works while they was here on this earth, everything they'd done, good or bad. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. In other words, that first set of books that was open. What you did while you was here on this earth, good or bad, God is going to look at it. We're looking at the fate of the lost, what Peter asked the question. He said they're going to stand before God. God has a record of everything they ever said, did, or whatever on the face of this earth, whether good or bad. They're going to be judged out of those books. Now, let's read on. And the sea gave up the dead, verse four, uh, 13, which were in it, and death and hell were delivered up, uh, delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged every man according to his works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, Peter said, what's going to happen to those who are lost? Look at verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, the book that matters, folks, is that other book that he mentioned in 12. Not the books of your works. In other words, it doesn't matter how good of a person you was on this earth. It doesn't matter how good of a neighbor you was, how good of a husband you was, how good of a mo- uh, uh, wife you was, how good of a mother, a uh, dad, or whatever. What's the determining factor is if your name is in that book of life. And folks, the way our name gets in that book of life is to be fully saved. Except Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. You see, if the righteous are scarcely saved, the wicked will certainly be destroyed. Look, if a person is not saved while they're here on this earth, there will be no second chance when they draw that final breath. Once death and the grave are delivered up, and it delivers them to stand before that judge that's on that great white throne, Jesus Christ, and the book of life is open, and the book of life does not have their name recorded in it, the Bible says they'll be cast alive into the lake of fire to spend eternity there. So what is the punishment of the wicked? According to this, the punishment of the wicked will be eternal death in the lake of fire. We must understand that eternal means forever. It means forever and ever and ever. If one finds himself at this great white throne judgment, folks, there is no more chance of even being scarcely saved. No more chance of even being scarcely saved. Church, we're living in the last days, and it won't be long until judgment falls upon this world. It's going to begin with us. It's going to begin with us. Then it's going to move to the lost world. Look, the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who've never obeyed God's word? And accepted Jesus as their personal Savior. Look, if as a Christian, we, 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 we suffer as Christians now, don't we? I mean, we all go through, whether it's health or emotion or whatever. But as a, as a Christian, you're suffering in some type of manner. Please understand this, that God knows about it. God knows about it. 
Trust your life to God. He created you, and he will never fail you. He will never forsake you. He will always be there with you. And if you're not saved, listen to me, time is short. Time is short. And time for salvation is now. Is now. Let's pray.